This is Yusai. Welcome to Let's Talk, a place for open conversation. Amy Vitali has traveled to over 100 countries to capture images of conflict and beauty. Her work photographing northern white rhinos has been transcendent for both her and her viewers. Also, famed fashion and celebrity photographer Alexei Lubomirsky is known around the globe for his high-profile work. Now he's utilizing his voice for animal rights in his initiative, Creatives for Change. Amy is internationally recognized for images she has made for National Geographic for over two decades. Even if you don't know her name. You have seen her influential work. The narratives in her pictures have always shown a sense of hope and humanity. The impact of her images is incredibly poignant for me, as I spent the early years of my career as a wildlife biologist working in the field in Kenya. Thank you for being here. We have one thing in common is that we love to tell stories through different subject matters that we have. The subject matter you have chosen, have worked in in the last twenty years, has been incredible. It's so emotional for me, because it's not just the images you take; it's understanding the visual and and the sensitivity and what those images bring. If you dig deep enough, all of us have this beautiful connection in some way to the natural world, and it's easy to forget that. That's kind of you know, I I love that's where we connect.、Um, well, I truly believe that it's because of your point of view and how you see the world, you're able to tell the story that you tell. My job is not just to make beautiful images. I love beautiful imagery, but to me, the story showing how deeply interconnected all of us are matters, and not just to each other, human beings, but also to the wild, to nature, to animals. And I think that is the one great lesson, sort of, from this pandemic. It is reminding all of us that you know that's the one truth. That we are really in a small, deeply interconnected world. I started my career actually telling the great human stories. I covered conflicts for a decade. I wanted to understand human beings, and then I realized I had this great, profound turning point about ten years ago when I met the last of an entire species. The last northern white rhinos that were alive.、Uh, before you go there, because I'm going to start crying and get super emotional、nope. about that, because I'm so I'm so attached to that 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 particular pivotal point of your career. Your reporter, your reporting back, your assignment in very early days of your career that this sent you to the darkest, darkest place, and you go there to find the light for us to see. When I heard the story for the very first time, I cried. I also lived in Kenya for a short, small amount of time, and I was at Nairobi National Park, where you pretty much became your second home for a long time. And、mm. and when I got to see what was happening during the dehydration and and animals were dehydrating, when I saw this ginormous dinosaur-like elephant dehydrated and die from that, we were there doing research for that. But that was nothing like what you captured. Watching any creature, any creature at all, any human being, anybody suffering, in something that is completely—you know—we actually have the capacity to make great changes for the better. In your work, there's always a hope and light. I believe in the best of humanity. We have empathy. We have understanding, and that's really what I try to do: is not just focus on. 
the horrors of the world. I've seen that. And even in the most horrific places, I always found cause for light, cause for hope. All of us get, you know, in our little bubbles and we don't actually always see how we all have this profound impact on one another, on each other. We're in this beautiful, intricate web together. And I've been so privileged to travel and see so much. But the thing that I am left with is how, oh, wow, we can all, every single individual, have a profound impact. You know, it's a double-edged sword. You can have a negative impact, and you can also have a really big powerful impact in a great way and that's what I want to inspire people and show them stories where people with very little you know little political power little you know resources are making the most incredible changes for the good in their communities and I think these stories are just as important to show and shine a light on and amplify their voices as the stories that divide us but my great shift was, you know, I started learning this, this very universal truth 20 years ago or 20 plus years ago when I was covering these conflicts and poverty and the horrors. And I started to see in every one of those situations, I met the most extraordinary human beings that gave me so much cause, like for hope. And they inspired me to go out and find my best version of who I am and what impact I could have. And that it wasn't just about taking beautiful or profound pictures. It was telling stories that hopefully ignite action. And then I had this great moment 10 years ago. There were at the time eight of these northern white rhinos, an entire species of rhinoceros, and they were all living in zoos. And I couldn't, I met them and I looked at them and they, you can see them. They're prehistoric. You understand immediately when you look at them, that they have been roaming this planet for millions of years as a species, but that they couldn't survive us, mankind. And that perhaps a hundred years ago, only a hundred years ago, there are at least tens of thousands of them roaming the planet, maybe hundreds of thousands of them. And today, on that day, there were eight. And it just stopped me. I looked at them and I wept. I couldn't believe that we did this. And I looked at them and understood that in my lifetime, they were probably going to go extinct. And so it just stopped me, made me do a whole 180. I stopped all of the work I was doing at that time and realized, wait a minute, every single story I had been telling about humanity was actually a story about nature and the natural world. You may not always realize it at first, but it is one and the same. You can't talk about nature without talking about people. It's one and the same. I felt like we were always leaving that piece of the story out. Through photography, Amy discovered her voice for activism. The work is so critical to bring awareness to the imminent extinction of an animal species. One of her most haunting images is the armed keepers protecting the last male white rhino. I've been working on this just going relentlessly over 10 years. It took me 10 years, but uh, in March of 2018, I got the call and they said, 
hurry back. This is at Old Pejeta Conservancy. And they said, Sudan, he's the last northern white male rhino. He's about to pass away. So I dropped everything I was doing, got on a plane, got there. And when I arrived, it was the most heartbreaking moment of my lifetime. I will, I hope I never have to experience something like this again, but but he was surrounded by all the, the people that loved him and protected him. And it was so eerie because usually in nature, it's actually quite noisy. Nature's not quiet. The birds are chirping. There's noise. Like life is loud when you're out in the natural world. And on that day, it was like the whole world was mourning with him. You know, it was totally silent. All you could hear was the gentle drops of rain the quiet, muffled sobs of these men and women that protected and loved this creature. And one, this bird called a go-away bird, madly chirping, just like screaming. And it was so haunting. And I talked to the keepers about, about this often. You know, it was just, it was such a haunting moment. And then that rhino leaned his heavy head into... Jojo, one of the keepers, to say his last goodbye. Jojo went up to, you know, comfort him and he leaned into him. And it's like this, it's such a haunting moment. It's also a beautiful moment because what it does is it exhibits the best of humanity. These, these men and, and women who sacrifice their, their lives, really, they spend more time with these creatures than they do their own families. They're there with them 24-7, sleeping, protecting them. You know, it's not easy. People say, I want to go and volunteer. Let me tell you, it is a hard life. And they don't get paid much. And um, they love them. And they understand the value that, that losing this species is not just the loss of a species. It's actually, you know, impacting humanity too, as we all are beginning to understand. It's also, I believe, a loss of wonder and the beautiful possibilities in this world. We need all these beautiful creatures because guess what? We get so much of fashion gets its inspiration from the wild. Can you imagine a world without these creatures? Because I can't. When you shifted from journalistic war zones and critical places to capturing critical moment of animals, was that a shift that, that was difficult to do? Yeah, I think that's kind of the interesting point that I brought in to this, this narrative. So what I found is when I was doing this work in the beginning, it was like nature was like the Sistine Chapel. You never saw people inside the pictures. Mm -hmm. Like people would go and do these blue chip documentary films that were amazing because going on a safari and seeing all the natural world is incredible, but they always left people out of the story. And I was like, wait a minute. I work in these places and I can tell you people are a part of these stories and that wow. I, by including humanity in this narrative, we can actually talk about what coexistence looks like. Finding a way forward involves communities, particularly indigenous communities who hold the keys to saving what's left. They are the greatest protectors if you give uh, the opportunities. And so I've been on this mission to find the hopeful stories where communities against all odds are making a profound impact. Amy's work is impressive. It is not hard to imagine the kind of ordeals she had to endure to capture her images. 
as a woman in a male-dominated field, I celebrate not only her work, but also her bravery. As a woman, when you work in these places that are extremely rigorous and difficult, were you ever questioned by people who give you an assignment, can you handle it? I think it's actually in this industry, it's challenging no matter what gender you are. You know, there's not a ton of money in conservation. Yeah, you know, I, I felt like it was tough on a lot of different levels, but I never looked at that. I found a way. I feel like if you want to do something badly enough, there is always a way. And I literally did Kickstarter. Like I did, I raised the money myself. I would, I mean, in the very, very beginning, if you want to flash back to my very beginning, I worked overtime. I began as an editor working on a desk. I worked every hour they would give me. And I saved up all my money and invested in the story. I applied for grants, by the way, for aspiring uh, storytellers, I've got a whole resource page on my website that lists all these opportunities for filmmakers, photographers, storytellers, because I've been there. I basically raised the money myself and I was like, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to go do the work and then present it to the magazines because I knew that I knew that there was a story there. And actually, when I first started covering the Rhino story, I pitched it to everybody I knew. And they all said no. And I went back and asked them again, like, well, why do you not want this story? And they said, oh, it's a great story for radio, but it's not going to be visual enough. And I was like, oh, no, wait, it will be. <laughs> and I, um, you know, I understand that's part of the issue sometimes when you're unknown, people don't know who you are. They don't know what your what kind of vision you're going to bring to it. And so I find that very often you just have to go do the work do the hard work, bring it back, and um, you will find a home for it. And, you know, I feel like we all have challenges, no matter what. It's tough. It's a tough world. You are a, a inspiration to so many women out there because what you have able to accomplish, not just in the voice of making awareness in conservation and, and raising awareness, I know what you're saying. You're so humble and so gracious that way. But I like to champion the fact that I've been out in Africa. I know how difficult it is. I personally, when I came back from Kenya, I went through a culture shock. Then I began to question, can I do it again? Can I do it again? And, and that was a pivotal time for my career change. I went from wildlife biologist to study art. And that was because of the blessing of somebody else who thought I have the ability and talent that I should pursue. However, I know what it's like to be out there. And you get on top of a moving train to shoot boys dancing in India. And when I see you do all these things, I can't help but say, this is a woman out there. Because a lot of these are cultural diversity don't embrace women in the position you're in. I'm fascinated. That's why I celebrate you as a woman photographer. Not because I think gender has anything to do with it, but because you have to work harder. I hear you. I, you know? I'm a typical woman. I actually think being humble is beautiful. But I will say this. I began as a painfully shy, introverted young girl, never had any dreams like that what I could be doing today. And I will just say this, you know, take that first baby step. It's terrifying. But when you put yourself like, take a risk sometimes, you know, bet on yourself that you can do this. And don't like every time the negative narratives start playing in your head that you can't do it. 
just try quietly for yourself only. Try one step at a time and you will be amazed at the capacity each and every single human being has. I look back on the things I, I did and now I'm like, I can't believe that. I didn't know that I could do that. You know, I think it's about just just taking a little bit of risk and, um, you know, and also realizing that in our most challenging moments, that is the greatest opportunity for our biggest transformation, that you should be in a place of discomfort every now and again, because that's when you're going to grow the most and be the best version of who you are. And I never regret the toughest moments of my life had made me who I am. And I am now, you know, pretty confident in who I am because because I did struggle and I did have moments of, you know, it was uncomfortable a lot of the time. And and discomfort brings the best version of who we are. And the other last thought I have is that we all have the capacity to reinvent ourselves. And that, this is the most beautiful moment for it. So if anybody out there is feeling despair or struggling, embrace it. Get through it because you're going to come on the other side of it and find so much more of who you are and your beautiful path that we are all meant to have, every single one of us. I have been fortunate enough to travel to Kenya several times. For Amy, it's like a second home. She has been outspoken in her support of Kenya as an important ecosystem. Kenya is amazing, and I want <sighs> people to travel there. And there's so beautiful lodges and places you can stay. And it's true, like sometimes I'll do rougher things, but there's actually, you know, for the giraffe manor, the giraffe manor. And and <sighs> the other thing, I just want to say for people that are thinking about traveling after all of this is over. When you travel, I'm, I'm actually now an ambassador, a wildlife ambassador for an organization called TreadRight. And they're on, on June 3rd, they're going to launch um, uh, some guides, how to be a good traveler, really, and how to mm. age with wildlife in a way that doesn't harm them. And I encourage you to check that out. But but here's my kind of the little takeaways I want to say. Our travel can be really impactful in a positive way when we do the research and we go to places where our tourism dollars are going back into the communities so they have a reason to protect the wildlife. So that's one thing to think about. And if anybody wants to write me, I can give them a whole list of amazing places to visit If you know when you start thinking about travel again and realize that travel is actually important for so many reasons. Absolutely. You know, it's important for us um, as humans to to learn about the, each other in this world and feel that connection again. I love that you have a positivity to all of it. And the fact is when I look at you, I know when I see those pictures, it's not luxurious. And that's what I'm talking about. But but yes, glamorous traveling, Giraffe Manor is one of the most beautiful places. I got to stay there. You wake up in the morning, you can see the giraffe. They come through the window. It's amazing. <laughs> And Vogue shoots there all the time. I'm completely comfortable in all kinds of situations. That's my point. It's crazily amazing because I I read your stories. I know you were in a place where there was no water for two weeks. And, and, and people look at you like, how are you going to survive in this village with us? We have two bags of rice left. Oh my God, I sound like I know everything about you, but I do. Because I'm so appreciative that you're putting such a positive spin to all this. And in fact, 
it is what we need. But I mentioned those things because I want people to know how strong you are and yeah. how amazing it is that when we flip over magazine and see a beautiful bird sitting on the back of a rhino, somebody's in the bushes, waited for hours. No, years. <laughs> years. No, it's true. Years. <laughs> I, it's true. Like you look at images and they take a lot of, a lot of sh- blood, sweat and tears for sure. And it's not easy. There's so many challenges but um but the physical challenges are the easy ones to be honest the mental ones are what kills you (laughs) yeah we're a lot stronger than we realize and and the physical challenges i like because they're temporary they go away i hope that we all reimagine you know embrace really hold on to the stillness it won't last but embrace it and and um reimagine i think a way forward that we are all a little more thoughtful about each other, empathy, and, and also for the natural world. Alexei Lubomirsky is an activist with a conscious voice who rose to prominence shooting incredible covers and stories for Vogue, Harper's, W, Numero, GQ, and many others. He's also well known as the British royal photographer, shooting the official photographs of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. I love the intro. I want to send that to my mother. Been an, an an amazing journey watching you work and watching develop as an artist over time and and your relationship with all the celebrities that you have gained over the years is truly admirable to see because you know as photographer myself developing relationship with the celebrities and and talents are actually more important and more of an art form than the actual technical photography itself. So how did you get started? <laughs> well, started. I was at photography college and in England, in Brighton. And I remember one day uh, we had this photographer come in to talk to us about what it's like in the real world. And he was really negative. And he was saying, none of you are going to, he basically said, he kept uh, this piece of paper and he said, none of you are going to work. Maybe one out of 40 is going to work. And everybody on this list is going to reject you. And I was like, this is so negative. This is awful. So during the break, I, um, he went to the bathroom and I went up to the podium and I took the piece of paper, I photocopied it, put it back and I left because I wanted to know what was on this piece of paper that he was talking about. And it turned out to be a couple of pages from that thing called Le Book. Mm-hmm. Remember Le Book? Yeah. Oh, yes. I, I, I presume Le Book is still around. I just, you know, but um, Le Book is basically a, a catalogue of all the addresses and phone numbers of all the model agencies, the photography agencies, the hair and makeup agencies, magazines, etc. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go and see everybody on this list with my portfolio six months before I leave college so they can tell me what to do to my portfolio. And they're going to help me. Obviously, they're going to help me. (laughs) Little did I know that, you know, you have to book an appointment or you have to create a portfolio. And it was, I think it was uh, just getting warm in England. And I thought to myself, if I'm going to go to London, I don't want to be carrying around a big portfolio because it's going to be too much work. So I photocopied all of my work onto pictures of this big so I could put it into a little book and put it in my pocket thinking they'll be fine with that. It's great. 
suffice it to say, I went to London for three weeks. I, I took a week off college and worked like triple shifts in the pub on the beach where I was working so I could raise enough money to go and couch surf in London. And I spent two weeks in London going through this list and I went to see everybody and knocked on everybody's door saying, hey, my name's Alexi. I'm a student of photography. I'm about to leave university. Uh, can you look at my work and tell me what I need to do to so you'd hire me? And they all looked at me with this little piece of paper and was like, slam, <laughs> slam the door <laughs> in my face. I was so downtrodden and so disheartened because everybody had said no to me, apart from one young photographer who took me for coffee and he'd just started photography and he said, Alexi, you're not doing it right. You've got to get a portfolio. And so come back in six months. And that young photographer was Tim Walker. And wow. So, yeah, it gave me so, chills. <laughs> that was amazing. And so it's beautiful to see, you know, him just starting off. Anyway, the last person on the list, I thought, I have to see this person because if I don't see this person, I might regret it. But then all I wanted to do is go back to my student dorms, get a tub of Ben and Jerry's and just hide under my duvet because I felt so, like, you know, rejected. So anyway, I, I said, I've got to get off the train, went to go and see this person. And it was a lady called Camilla Lauder, who is a, a photography agent. And I knocked on the door and she was literally locking the door as I walked into the building. And she said that she looked at me at this sweaty sort of disappointed young man and she looked at my little portfolio and she was laughing at it and she said you're not ready to be a photographer but you should be an assistant and I, I love what i love the narrative in your photographs so you're not ready though so i think you should be an assistant and mario testino is looking for somebody and so literally two weeks later i was meeting mario testino and i tried out with him for a few months and then i worked with him solidly for four years it was the most intense education you know ever Learning how to navigate a commercial art world is challenging for any young photographer. I'm grateful for all the learning experiences and occasional happy accidents on the way. And like you, I had a lot of no's. And, and incredibly enough, out of all those no's, there's always somebody who's going to give you a no with a little push. And I was actually a painting major when I was in school, and I was told I was never going to be a good painter. I'm horrible at it. But conceptually, like you, I was there. They keep saying, conceptually, you have what it takes as an artist, but you're just never going to technical skill. So right. they told me to change my major to advertising and communication, because if you can get your communication down, you can hire people to do the work right. that you want to do. So that was the best lesson ever from somebody who kicked me out of the program and bought me into a new program. But yeah. so, so I really did get into the business as an advertising and creative director, and I came from that side of it. But, you know, they all come hand in hand when the economy started changing. People wanted to work with one-stop shop or people would come with creative mind like you, who's an author and a writer and a poet. You come with conceptual idea what narrative you want to photograph. It's putting your poetry to life, what you're doing. And, and that's different than majority of photographers out there, especially the new generation, right? But you went through the best education ever because Testino was yeah. one of my heroes. You know, he was he's incredible what he has done. You know, at some point, just said to you, "You're ready. You need to go off and do your own thing." Well, no, it was actually funny. Um, I because with him, you literally worked every single day. You're on a plane every four days. You're working every day. I think there was a six month period where I didn't even have an apartment anywhere. I just because those days that we were not traveling, I just slept on the office floor in my sleeping bag. So because we literally worked every day, I had no time to do tests. Now, as you know, you have to do tests to fill your portfolio and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So every time I tried to plan a test with assistant makeup and assistant hair and stylist, 
the the day before the shoot, Mario would say, okay, guys, we've got a big shoot tomorrow in Brazil or in, you know, wherever. And so I'd have to cancel it. So in four years, I think I managed about three tests. And the first test I did was an absolute waste of time because I had so many ideas that I put like seven ideas into one and it just came out as a... Um, but the next one I did, we had, I didn't have any money for lights. I took a few rolls of film, left, you know, reject film. After every shoot, there's always a couple of films left over yeah. in the Polaroid boxes. So I took like two rolls per shot and I was going to plan to do six shots. And I got my girlfriend at the time uh, to model and we found a, uh, a bathroom with no windows. So it was blacked out completely. And because I didn't have any lights, because first of all, I didn't really know how to do flash because I was a second assistant, not first assistant. So I did 20 second exposures and I painted light on with a pen torch. So my little brother was with a stopwatch doing 20 seconds. The model would uh, lie down or get in a position where she'd stay still. And as they were counting to 20, I would go in with a pen torch and do a bit of light in her eyes, a bit up here to give some drama, a bit in here to fill up, you know, blah, blah, blah. And because you're shooting film, you don't know what you're getting. So you're just praying that it's working. And you did a Polaroid, it kind of worked. And I was like, okay, you've got to stay really still. And in the end, we, you know, thank God we got one shot per outfit. And I, I remember showing it to uh, Katie Grand, who was the editor-in-chief of uh, the Face magazine and Pop magazine at the time. And I was always eager to talk to people, you know. I, I think there was, um, because we worked so much, there was definitely a thing of, like, the assistants, you just want to have your free time, just a, a five minutes of free time. But I would use those five minutes of free time to go and talk to Katie Grand, Grace Coddington, Fabian Baron, whoever it was, and ask them how they got started, what they thought of the industry, any tips for me. After I'd spoken to Katie Grand, one time I showed her these Polaroids, and I said, can you just give me some advice on this? And she, she said, give them to me, I'll come back to you in a week. And in a week, she phoned me and said, I'm going to run them in Face magazine. And wow. so that was my first published shoot. So I got this Face um, shoot. And then Katie Grand then started asking me to do shoots. And I think I was so scared to leave Mario because I was only second assistant. And the first assistant did all the lighting. The second assistant just did what he told me. <laughs> and, um, and finally, I think Katie Grand rang up Mario and said, I want to use Alexi. Because I kept saying to her, I'm really busy with Mario. I can't shoot. And so finally she rang up Mario and said, can I shoot with Alexi? And he phoned me up and said, listen, do you want to work with me or do you want to work by yourself? And I remember I had this moment of like blackout and I was like, for myself. <laughs> and as soon as I put the phone down, I was like, oh my God, what have I done? But she was my fairy godmother for the first couple of years because she uh, introduced me to Grace Cobb at Face Magazine. She put uh, shots in, in, uh, in Pop Magazine. And then she took me to Harper's US and basically plopped me there under Glenda Bailey. And I think I had my first cover of Harper's in my second or third year of being a photographer. So out of my depth. And one of the amazing things about working as an assistant, and I, I always say to people, I recommend being an assistant because you get to be on set and you get to be a fly on the wall. You get to see somebody else make mistakes and how they fix it, how people talk to each other, how creatives interact. I think there's a benefit in being able to watch somebody else bigger than you, how they succeed, how they fail, and how they make the whole system work. Because it's not just about taking pictures, as we've talked about. It's about people skills. It's about, um, I always tell my assistants, being a good photographer, you have to be um, the host of a party because you have to make sure everybody's getting on. You have to be a therapist because whoever's having problems, you have to listen to their problems and make sure they, you know, lift them up. And after you've done all this, then you get to be a photographer. Absolutely. And uh, 
So it's a really, it's, and it's a funny thing because I remember when I first started, there was five of us in London who just left these big photographers. I was not the best photographer out of the, bo- out of the five. I was, that was the worst. But I could talk to people. And I remember seeing these other photographers. They were fantastic. They were artists. Their light was just divine. But they had less people skills, so they couldn't – they were more uh, tortured artists. So they would do a picture, and the client would say to them, it's beautiful, but can we see some light on the, on the dress? And they would say, no, 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 it has to be dark. Whereas I – I know that I'm a paid artist. You know, I have a, I have an artistic vision, but they're paying me to put my artistic vision and marry it with their product, which is, a, you know, you have to remember you are a collaborate. It's a collaboration. It is so true, right? It's we, we know a lot of artists are undiscovered because they lock themselves in a room and they very internalize everything. They, they don't talk about their work and they assume as an artist that people should just celebrate their work. Photography in the level that you're working, it is a commerce. It is, it's pages that sells products and in return, that has to be a revenue in order for them to print and then they can print again. So yes. Absolutely right. That's the best lesson that anybody can learn is art and commerce. You can do art on your own if you have the luxury doing it. But when you show up, bring your art to the table and remember the commerce part of it. When your first cover landed and the second went A-list celebrity immediately. And what was that like for you? Terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it was like, I remember the first cover I shot for Harper's. I think it was a, it was a, it was an actress called Terry Hatcher, the 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 the, yes. the, the, the top Desperate show at the time, Housewives. Desperate Housewives, and it was a reshoot. So Glenda Bailey called me up and said, uh, "We've got this reshoot to do, but the original photographer is not available. Can you do it? It's in two or three days' time. Do you have any ideas?" And I done I done so much research, and research is so important to me that I always getting ideas, putting them into files, gathering imagery, gather, gathering references, so that if opportunity knocks i'm ready to go for it and so she said have you got any ideas and i remember saying i've got ideas i'm going to send them to you in five minutes rather than saying okay give me two days and i'll think of something i got on set and i remember i had my assistant buy three t-shirts because i was sweating sweating. so much because i was so nervous and i didn't sleep the night before and i just remember thinking you know you're lying in bed going oh my god God, i just want to go home i want to go home i want to fly back to england and and but you you just get on with it because you know what you're doing. It's the same. Every photo shoot is the same core ingredient. You're trying to take a picture of something. You're trying to fit a, a square like this, make a beautiful shape in there. It's kind of like a chef. You've got great ingredients and you just got to put it in the bowl and put it in the pot and you've got to cook it. And it's all just like one, two, three. And just remember to stay loose. Remember to be prepared for anything. Cause that's the other thing. I think that when you, um, going back to watching other photographers make mistakes on a, on a wonderful day, my mother could take amazing fashion pictures. You know, when the sun is right, when the dress is right, the hair is right, the model's amazing. Everything's great. Anybody can take a picture. It's when things go wrong. That's when experience kicks in. And that's when you've watched the people, you know, there's no sun and you have to make it sunny. Uh, the model's hair doesn't, doesn't work. So you have to think of something else or it's too much wind or whatever it is. How are you going to create something? It is critical for all of us to do what we can for the environment. And more than ever, it is inspiring to see people using their platforms and power to do good. 
Let's talk about creative for change. So in 2008, I sort of, I was offered by one of the supermodels of the time to shoot her for this campaign, the big fur campaign. And I'd never felt right shooting fur, but I didn't think I had any power to say no to it. And, you know, especially in editorials when there's one piece here, one piece there. But then I was offered this campaign for so much money. It was my most money I'd ever made. And it was all fur. And so this was, and the first time, it's just going to be fur, I've got to make a decision. And the first words that popped into my head was blood money. And it was really interesting. I was like thinking, this is so weird that that just popped into my head. And, you know, what am I going to do with this? So I phoned my agent up and I said, you know what? I'm going to have to turn this job down. And they said, you're crazy. You need this money. Um, you, you're, it's, it's kind of hypocritical because you do shoot it in editorials and mm-hmm. everybody shoots it. And I said, yeah, I know. But, you know, I, I know that if I, I'm, I'm at quite a fork in the roads and I have to decide what are my ethics as a creative. And, so I said no, and I put the phone down thinking, I'm going to just I'm gonna call him back straight away, going, give me the job, give me the job. But when I put the phone down, I felt this elation, this, this wow. beautiful weight had been lifted off me because I'd made a very important decision for the right reason, for a good purpose. And, and that started my, my thing, and that was back in 2008. So then I started saying no to fur, uh, which lost me lots of jobs um, because, you know, people want to shoot fur. And... Uh, so during the autumn winter season, I didn't work very much. So then in 2017, I was suddenly phoned up by, um, Harry and Megan to shoot their, uh, engagement pictures out of nowhere. I'd never met them before. And, uh, I remember I was, my mother was having a, um, was in hospital having a brain tumor removed. And the whole day long, we were just walking around the, the, the hospital and waiting for the doctor to call. It was a 10 hour operation. And finally, the phone rings, and I think it's the doctor. And I say, hello, hello. And they say, is that Alexi? And I said, yes. And they said, this is Kensington Palace calling. And I was like, what? 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 And they said, Kensington Palace, can we talk to you about a project? And I was like, I was looking around going, what? what is this? And I suddenly remembered all day long, the TVs in the hospital had been saying, Harry and Meghan get engaged. Mm. So that clicked in. So then I thought, it's my best friend pranking me. So I was about to say, are you, are you kidding me? It's my mom's operation. <laughs> and um, anyway, I was very calm. I said, uh, can I call you back tomorrow? And suffice it to say, it was them. And so two or three days later, I met them. We ended up doing the shoot together. I knew it was going to get pressed, but I didn't realize how much press it was going to get. And after that, they asked me to do the wedding. And so I was suddenly, my, my visibility went through the roof. Yes. And I realized that... A lesson that my stepfather on his, on his last three weeks of life, he taught me was at the end of your life, you want to make sure you look back and make sure that you've used all of your blessings to bless others, to help others. And so I thought to myself, well, what am I going to do with all this attention? Am I just going to be like, you know, grab, grab, you know, or can I use it for a good reason? I wanted to solidify my uh, rejection of fur and feathers and exotic skins. So I started going around. Now that people recognize my name a bit more, I went around people uh, in the industry with this new initiative called Creatives for Change. Um, and it works on the idea that we all in the industry, whether a photographer, stylist, hair, makeup, creative director, magazine editor, we all have incredible power to inspire. Because when we take a picture, when you take a picture, you know, you go to work and you try and take a good picture and you go back home. But we we forget sometimes that that image will go out into the world and live forever. 
and it will inspire people in different ways. So if you have a beautiful girl standing on top of a sand dune, smoking a cigarette, wearing a fur coat, looking incredible, you are inspiring people to smoke. Young, young, young minds, you're inspiring people to smoke. You're inspiring people to buy fur. So with this creative power comes amazing amounts of responsibility. You have mm-hmm. to take responsibility for what you put out. So I would go around everybody in the industry and I would say, I was a bit naughty. I, w- I would email them and say, I would love to talk to you about an initiative. I wouldn't say what it was because I knew that most people would be like, I'm busy. And so I would go and see them. And as soon as I met them, I'd say, hey, so I want to talk to you about, you know, signing a pledge saying you will no longer shoot fur, feathers, exotic skins. And some of them would be like this, like going, <laughs> like, how am I going to get out of this meeting? But the beautiful thing was that we are all kind people. In our hearts, we're all kind people. We have empathy and compassion. The thing is that we're never really sort of put in a spot where you get to say, what are your ethics? How do you actually feel about the way fur and feathers and exotic skins are created? Because we know now. In the old days, 10, 15 years ago, you could say, I don't really know how it's made, so I get a free pass. Nowadays, we just pick up our phone, say, how is fur collected? How is crocodile skin you know, harvested? And so that means that we do have a choice and we have a responsibility to make a choice because the information is there. So we were, I was, it was amazing because I got so many people who immediately signed up. They said, you know what? I'm so glad you're doing this because I've always felt bad about that, but I never really gave it enough importance. So I'm signing up. So they would never use fur, feathers, exotic skins again. So we got people like Inez and Venud. We got people like Jennifer Aniston, Kate Winslet, uh, Tony Goodman, uh, you know, stylist, uh, InStyle magazine. Um, but it was also interesting from the people who said no, what their reasons were. Some photographers would say, I would love to, but when the, when the magazine stopped putting them in the pages, I will definitely stop shooting. Mm-hmm. So I've seen the magazines and the magazines would say, I will definitely, we will we'll stop promoting them when the designers stop making them. Stop making So I saw the designers and they said, well, when the public stops demanding it, we'll stop making it. So you have this cycle. So we have to be the ones to step out of the cycle and say, because we're the ones who make this stuff aspirational. The photographers, mm-hmm. the stylists, the magazines, we're the ones who say we create this beautiful, inspiring image and we're telling people what to wear. So we have to make a choice. And so some people I would say to them, listen, because everybody has a key to how to change them. You know, it's the whole people skill thing again. Some people I would say, listen, you are at the top of your game right now and you have the power. You know, we, we can all use our diva card. In the old days, the generation before, they would say, <laughs> I want red M&Ms, I want a private jet, I want a private trailer. So I said, still be a diva, but use your diva card for ethical reasons. Nobody can fault you for saying, you know what, I don't want to shoot that because I don't agree with how it's made. Nobody's going to say, oh my God, you're so difficult, because we all know it's wrong. So I go around and tell people, listen, don't wait until 10, 15 years from now, because you might not be the top dogs anymore. And you might look at yourself then going, oh, I really want to make a change, but I don't have the power. Use the power while you have it. Use your voice while you have it. Especially in the fashion industry, it's so fickle. Environmental activism is a family affair for Alexei. His wife, Gietta, is also passionately involved. So she's, she's, a, she's a force. She's a typhoon, um, an environmental typhoon. She is, uh, she's so involved with the environment, uh, in terms of, so for example, just one of the things she did, uh, we were on holiday, uh, in, she's Italian, Cuban Italian, and we were in Sardinia Ooh, two or three years fire. ago. She's fire. She's <laughs> fire. 
<laughs> two, two phones, two phones. And, um, and uh, she was on the beach and she, she was, you know, she's always picking up trash on the beach. When we go away on holiday, she carries an extra suitcase, an extra duffel bag, because she will bring back from holiday anything that she can't recycle. She'll bring it back to America. So we have bags of rubbish that we bring back to New York. <laughs> and then one day she was on the beach and she was, uh, was sitting there. And after she'd done this beach cleanup, she was like, it's so crazy. I've got to talk to somebody. Why is there no trash cans here? Why do they keep doing this? Why are there straws on the beach? Blah, blah, blah. And she said, I'm going to find out who to talk to. And when my wife gets that look in her eye, you know some, the, the planets are about to shift. And then, and I was like, okay, let's see where this goes. And two days later, we were standing in the uh, the president's office of the National Park of La Madalena, which is a, an island of Sardinia. And he was like saying, you know, he was being talked to by my wife. She was like, you should be doing this, you should be doing this. This is crazy, tourism, blah, 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 blah. And so he said, listen, if you can help us, that'd be amazing. Wow. So my wife and I left, we sat down on the beach and I could see her looking off to the horizon. She says, basta con la plastica, enough with plastic. That's what it's going to be called. I was like, what's going to be called? 12 months later, she was uh, running Italy's first ever ocean awareness week where she had you know seven days or five days of environmental artists coming in, panels of uh, experts, beach cleanups, volunteers from all over the world. I mean, it was incredible. And now she's working with the UN for World Oceans Day. And she's doing other things. She's going to do a, a documentary on sustainable fashion. She works with local politicians to try and affect change. She works with education programs. I mean, she is like a triple typhoon just swirling. And I'm just in the middle going, ah. <laughs> <laughs> and this education is passed on to your kids as well. They're hysterical because they just, it's, it's part of their vocabulary. It's just, just, they didn't even think about it. It's just they were born with it. So anything, you know, and, but the thing is you can't argue with, you can't fault a child. So it's always fascinating when I watch people, when I watch my wife doing, you know, picking up trash on the beach, my, my kids are helping her. When my wife picks up a, like a cigarette butt next to an Italian guy or whoever's lying on the beach, they'll get, they'll either have a reaction like, what are you doing? Why mm -hmm. are you, you know, why are you making me feel guilty about this? I'm, I'm on holiday. Or they'll stand up and help you. They'll be inspired to help you. But if they see a child picking up your cigarette butt off a beach or picking up your straw, you immediately go, oh my God. This is terrible. What am I doing? And they stand up and they say, I saw your kids picking up trash. I'm helping out now. I've got some friends. They're going to come over. And before you know it, at the end of the day, I see my wife who went out with just her and my two kids coming back with like six or seven people. And it's little changes. And it's, I think it's all about all of us remembering that whatever you're trying to do, whatever your cause is, whether you're trying to stop fur, feathers, exotic skins, whether you're trying to be vegan, whether you're trying to save the oceans, whatever it is, don't look at the whole mountain. Because if you see the whole mountain, you think, I can't climb that. There's no way I'm going to make a difference. But the only way to climb a mountain is by baby steps. As long as you keep stepping in the right direction, you will get there one day. Thank you, Amy and Alexi, for your hard work. Not only for your achievements in your disciplines of photography, but most importantly, you have become leaders in activism, raising awareness for the importance of animal rights and saving our ecosystem. Thank you to all my listeners for your constant support. Please subscribe to the podcast for more open conversations. You can visit our website at letstalkwithusite.com and follow me on Instagram at usite88 for updates.
Let's Talk is a production of 88 Phases. I'm your host, Yusai. Our director, Luis Jaime. Writer, editor, producer, Trevor Swenjen. 